You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. To find out more about the journal and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. My name is Bill Goodnight, and I'm your moderator today. Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Vijaye Cancellara, Dr. Suzanne Carmichael, and Dr. Gerald Grant on behalf of their co-authors to the AJP podcast series to discuss their manuscript, Factors Associated with Timeliness of Surgical Repair among Infants with Myelomeningocele, California Perinatal Quality Care Collaborative, 2006 to 2011. The authors represent the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University and the Department of Pediatrics and Neurosurgery at Stanford University. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends that delivery of a fetus with myelomeningocele should occur in a hospital that provides tertiary neonatal care, and has personnel capable of managing the spinal defects. Surgical repair is recommended to occur between the day of birth and two days of life to reduce the risk of nerve damage and meningitis. Several factors such as age, sex, race, and ethnicity, and insurance status have been associated with adverse health outcomes among infants with myelomeningocele. The objective of this study is to determine the prevalence of timely myelomeningocele repair and associated demographics among infants with myelomeningocele in California using the California Perinatal Quality Care Collaborative Database. The authors examined 450 infants with myelomeningocele who were live born and had a repair in the first 28 days of life. They excluded those who underwent fetal repair of the myelomeningocele. Of the 450 infants, 62% were Hispanic, 68% had Medi-Cal insurance, and 78% delivered in a level three or four hospital. 49% were transferred from the birth hospital to a secondary hospital for myelomeningocele repair. 89% of those infants had their repair at the day of birth to two days after birth. The authors identified factors that were associated with delayed repair. The presence of hydrocephalus was less likely to be associated with a delay repair, while the presence of Medi-Cal or non-private insurance was associated with a two-fold increased likelihood of having a delayed repair. The authors concluded that in California, fortunately, most cases of myelomeningocele receive timely repair. They do report that delayed surgery in this data set is associated with payer status. Dr. Cancellara, Dr. Grant, Dr. Carmichael, thank you very much for joining us today on the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. We're very excited about your manuscript. Thank you. We're excited to talk to you today. So first off, for our listeners, could you sort of describe what your primary motivations were or, or sort of the spark that, that inspired this study? 
So this paper is part of a, a broader project, which is funded by the National Institutes of Health, and particularly the, the National Institute on Minority Health Disparities, to look at disparities in care, morbidity, and outcomes among babies who are born with birth defects. And it's focused on data in California. And basically, we wanted to understand just what the title says. So we wanted to understand what are what are the factors that may be affecting differences in outcomes of these babies, factors related to either social determinants or systems of care that could be contributing. And then what we've done is take specific birth defects and examine these questions because, as we know, every phenotype, every type of birth defect is, is, is quite unique in what causes it as well as in how we care for it. And so that's really what serves as the impetus for this analysis. Dr. Cancellara, do you know, are, are there, or do you guys have examples of other birth defects where we've seen minority biases or differences among certain birth defects? Definitely. And I would also like to add to what Susan has just described. So Susan gave a really nice overview of the main impetus behind what we have done. But again, we are planning on looking at various outcomes related to spina bifida. So this is one of them, looking at timeliness of surgery. So very recently, the Spina Bifida Association put out some guidelines on what the optimal time for surgery is to minimize adverse outcomes among these babies. So that was new knowledge we had. Zero to two days after birth is when they advocate for the first closure surgery. So we wanted to see if babies in California are getting this timely surgery. And when we did some uh, literature review, really there was not much data old data from Florida, and that was about it, population-based data. So this data set gave us that opportunity to look at timeliness soon after these guidelines came out. So that was another impetus I want to add to what Susan just shared. Great. So your database used the California Perinatal Quality Care Collaborative. Can you describe this database and this data source and, and, and where the information comes from and who is represented in this collaborative? So the CPQCC is a statewide network of hospitals in California. And in particular, it's a network of of NICUs or neonatal intensive care units. And it collects data from those NICUs on even their most vulnerable babies. So for example, primarily those with very low birth weight, but also those with serious birth defects. And what it does is it collects data on the care and outcomes among those babies and really serves as a a network of data across these NICUs. And it includes data from over, I believe, 95% of NICUs and 95% of the babies that are in NICUs in California, but really is straight-wide. But it, it allows a way to collect more granular data about these babies so that we can care for them better. And because it's a network, it helps hospitals communicate with each other about what they're doing so that they can all improve their care. And it also represents a way to actually implement what we find from things like research studies into the practice setting through quality improvement initiatives and so forth, because there's this whole existing network in the state. And so we use data from CPQCC to find the cases for this study. 
And then to get the information about their care, we actually linked that data with statewide data on hospital discharges that include hospital discharges for babies born in California. And it's also linked with birth certificates, which each piece of that enable, of that data sort of network enables us to come up with a very rich data set and ask the kind of questions, for example, the question that Dr. Kinsherla asked in her study. Does this data set link back to maternal factors and, and is it linked at all to maternal prenatal care or prenatal diagnosis? So in terms of maternal factors, we get most of them from the birth certificates. And prenatal care, we were not able to link. So that was one of the limitations we stated in the paper. Also prenatal diagnosis for spina bifida. So those are limitations again, but based on what we have through CPQCC and the hospital discharge data, as well as the vital records, we were able to get very good information on maternal factors, especially demographic factors. And we do have information on maternal conditions or comorbidities from the birth certificate, as well as from hospital discharge data. So the baby's and the mom's hospital discharge records were actually linked, although we didn't really get into the mother, the mother's conditions as much because we were really interested in the downstream care of the baby. And we didn't, as Dr. Chincherla said, we didn't have information on prenatal diagnosis per se. We did have information just on when they started prenatal care, but we didn't have details about that care. Uh, We would also like to highlight a strength here. So because of the hospital discharge data set, we were able to look at hospital level variables, which were not examined previously. So we had information on the level of care, if there were transfers from birth hospital to repair hospital. So all of that information was examined for the first time in relation to the outcome of timeliness. And if there are any disparities based on the hospitals where the children are getting care or where they were born or related to transfer between hospitals. Great. So can you describe the patients that you studied in this group and what the primary outcomes of the study were? So these are babies from birth to one year, but we were only interested in those who got the repair within the first 28 days of life because we thought children that got the first repair later, later than 28 days, may not be generalizable because most of these babies get the surgical repair done very early after birth. So these are our babies, um, the analytic set that we looked at. And the outcome, the main outcome was when their surgery was done from their date of birth. So we had two groups, one where the surgery was timely, that is within the first 48 hours. And the second was where they had a delayed surgery from third day on to 28th day. And then... Mm -hmm. Looking at these two groups, we looked at various factors that could have impacted that outcome of delayed surgery. So in this group, how did they do in terms of having a timely repair? Um, So we had 90% of the babies that we examined had a timely repair. 
It's good, but I think we stated in our paper that there is room for improvement. We want all of the babies to have a timely repair. So 10% did not meet that criteria. And we also saw that among those who got the repair, about 80% were delivered in level three or four NICUs, which is what is recommended. So we still have some babies that are born in lower level hospitals where they may not get the multidisciplinary care they need soon after birth to do the surgery. And these were the babies that needed transfer to a higher level of hospital. So those two are important findings in terms of when the surgery is happening and where the surgery is happening. I found it interesting that 49% of the patients were ultimately transferred from their hospital of birth to the hospital of repair. Yes. Do you have any information on the patients who were transferred from the birth hospital to the hospital of repair in regards of why they were transferred from those hospitals? Some examples I could see might result in this transfer were a a patient that was delivered at a maternity hospital where a neighboring children's hospital is where they would have done the repair. And in that system, this delivery might be planned. I think we all would be nervous if half of the deliveries were were not planned in such a way that, that they were outborn and then transferred for their ultimate hospital of repair. Do you have information on how that sort of works out, or is this a surprising number to you? If Jerry has anything to add to about um, how this works in California. Sure. No, thanks for the question. From a neurosurgery perspective, you know, it's easier, of course, if there's prenatal care, and we know that these kids have a meningomyelocele that will need to be repaired, and we try to have them deliver, you know, at a center where there's pediatric neurosurgical care, but it doesn't always work out that way. Of course, you know, it's Sometimes they deliver early or whatnot. So it's hard to tease out, I think, in this study. Luckily, most of these were quite timely. You know, as as mentioned, you know, 90% were timely repairs, which is really good. I think it'll be really interesting to look at the 10% later in terms of looking at these babies of what, what happened to them in terms of, you know, is there increased morbidity? That's something we can comment on later. I'll finish with the hydrocephalus. You know, when they have microcephaly or increased ventricle size because of the meningomyelocele, that often tips their delivery at a higher center because they're very worried about the need to urgently treat the hydrocephalus. Or if you treat the fetal repair and or, and do the repair after birth, there's a chance that the hydrocephalus will get worse because you've now closed out the outflow, you know, where the fluid could drain. So that, that's something important that, to keep in mind as well about how hydrocephalus links with this disorder. So of those 10% that, that had a delayed repair, what were the major factors that your study attributed to reasons why they had a delayed repair? So low birth weight was an important predictor. So babies that had low birth weight were more prone to have a delayed repair. And as Jerry just mentioned, hydrocephalus came out to be a factor that promoted timely repair. And he gave a really nice explanation because these are high-risk pregnancies and they are planned better and they're delivering in higher-level hospitals. Another important variable that came out to be significant was insurance status. So when we compared insurance status of mothers who had babies with timely repair versus those who did not, those on Medi-Cal, which is a public insurance for the state of California, had a higher risk of 
having delayed repair so we did not find race ethnic disparities or disparities related to education level or poverty level but we did find that insurance predicted delayed repair so we couldn't look more into it but we want to in the future look at how the insurance can impact why some babies get delayed repair did you feel like you had a diverse enough population from a race and ethnic standpoint to to be able to find those differences as you know interestingly in in a lot of the literature that's put out on fetal myelomeningocele it's a a relatively homogeneous population who's getting fetal repairs in the US right so one thing we did at the beginning of the study was to exclude fetal repairs we only had eight fetal repairs in our cohort so we excluded them to make our study sample more homogeneous in terms of babies that were live born and had the surgery after birth postnatally so california definitely is a diverse population case so we had about 60% hispanics which you don't see in some of the other states in the us again uh, diversity wise i think we did have a cohort where we had racially and ethnically diverse group and also socioeconomically diverse group of population in our study do you have any any thoughts or suppositions on why the medical or non-private health insurance was associated with the delays in repair We'll see if Dr. Grant has any input on that too. I I don't know, but it's certainly a next step in trying to understand why and if there's anything that can be done about that to figure out how to reduce these late repairs if it is something systemic. Yeah, I agree from an administrative perspective. That that's very intriguing that result and it's something we I think can hone in on from a prenatal perspective, which is where all this really begins for a parent. We do so much prenatal counseling these families, you know, to get them ready for what's coming. And that would be good to look at even the prenatal visits in terms of the counseling that may be very different as for private versus medical. I don't, I don't know. But there's a lot more follow-up that could be done from this really interesting study. Dr. Grant, you mentioned just a, a few importances of delayed, delayed surgery, but do you have other thoughts on what some of the effects of a delayed repair after delivery and what some of the potential effects on a transfer from one hospital to another one might be before repair? Basically, what some of the implications for for this delay in repair could be for these kids? Uh, Yes, it's a very good question. You know, we always wonder what the, you know, timing, you know, in terms of morbidity of that timing is and what that means for a child. You know, we really try to get them repaired within 24 hours of delivery. So the first two days, I think, are are very reasonable. But, you know, three days and more, I think, is really a fairly long time for these children because the definition of this is that the spinal cord is open you know, and exposed to the outside. So we're very worried about meningitis risk, infection. These kids have ongoing CSF leak potentially out their back. Depends how they were delivered by C-section. Sometimes you don't have rupture of these very thin arachnoid layers, but they're delivered vaginally, for example, they're usually ruptured and there's a open communication and the delayed repair will lead to delayed shunting because one has to happen usually before the other. It's a really good question though, long-term and around the world. I just got back from Uganda last week doing myelomingusu repairs and 
there. It's almost by natural selection. I repaired Milo's 10 days out, two weeks out, two years out. You know, you wonder how these kids survived, but they do, some of them. But of course, I'm seeing a very small denominator. But it's, it's a very good question because we don't have a clear handle on it in the United States. So many repaired, as you see in this study, 90% within a very early time frame, which I think is a very good thing. But it's very theoretical based on what the pathophysiology and the neurodevelopmental implications are for this disorder. Uh, we're very worried about the exposed spinal cord to the, to the elements of causing ongoing risk and that the earlier we can get that repaired and covered to protect the spinal cord is the goal of that repair. We don't know if that ever improves their outcome in terms of improving levels of neurologic uh, deficit, but it's really meant to at least try to preserve as much function as they have. Can you guys think of any confounders or other variables that may not have been able to be evaluated in this study that, that could have implications for these kids or these outcomes? I'll take that one. I think that we've mentioned a lot of them. I think what we'd really like to know is more information about, as Dr. Grant mentioned, for example, about sort of the content of their prenatal care and their birth planning and whether that was an issue that could be improved or is it that some of these actually weren't prenatally diagnosed, for example? And that's in, in thinking about what le may lead to the, the transfers as well as the timeliness of repair. Yeah, it seems I think that that, that may have a lot of the confounders in it, right? Like, like presence of hydrocephalus might have been easier to detect on prenatal ultrasounds and, and, and that might, you know, prompt more delivery at tertiary care centers or delivery at a place where you, where, where you suspect you might need surgery. The inverse association with low birth weight I found to be interesting. And I don't know if that's a reluctance, either an unstable child that you don't want to take to the operating room or, or a reluctance to proceed with surgery in a, if low birth weight is the marker for prematurity you know, in a preterm infant. Those are great points. They're all potential factors that we could look into further. So on some levels, we had a very rich data set, you know, in some ways having some, you know, at least some clinical data coupled with the, the detail about the surgery and then some of the, the social, sociocultural variables and being able to bring those all together. But as usual, we always want, we wish we had had more detail on a number of things as well, which, which I think we've discussed. So it's very exciting. I think this is a great and important introduction into examining how these kids get into the system and get their care. And you mentioned that this is the tip of the studies for your group. So so what's next? Tempt us with, with what we're looking forward to seeing from your group. Well, most immediately, Dr. Cancherla is, is looking at mortality among this group and factors associated with mortality. Um, and more broadly, we are using this data set to look at other birth defects as well. And we started with what we consider the most life-threatening, severe congenital anomalies. Some of the ones we're studying right now are congenital diaphragmatic hernia and hypoplastic left heart. We're starting an analysis of biliary atresia. One of the really interesting things about this is with congenital anomalies, I know that in some ways we group them all together and some conversations, yet each one is clearly distinct in 
you know, how well it's prenatally diagnosed or what are the issues around how, how urgent it is to get repaired sooner than later. So it'll be interesting to see how all these factors sort of come into play in relation to the care and outcomes for these different types of birth defects. Another one in the series is looking at distance to care to see if there are any disparities and also time to travel. So we have geocoded data of mother's residence, and then we are tracking the distance to the repair hospital. So we're just starting this analysis and seeing some interesting findings, and uh, we look forward to also presenting that. Can you hypothesize when all this data sort of comes in, what, what this may mean towards innovative interventions in the care of these pregnancies and kids and sort of how this could affect the, the, the prenatal care and neonatal care spectrum or delivery of the, of the healthcare system? So one thing I can uh, think about is advocacy for the family to give them more information on to better plan pregnancies and just to in- increase knowledge about the outcomes related to not having a timely surgery. But again, clinically, I think Dr. Grant would be able to give some more innovative outcomes from this work. I think for me, neurosurgically, we're very interested to see what what happens to these children, particularly with this disparity and difference of timing of repair. These are very hard studies to do and try to get this these data. But if we had some outcome or some impact on outcome that was clear, you know, in this data, that would really prompt quite a bit of an attention to where these kids are delivered. I mean, even in this study, most of the women, I believe, you can correct me, but I thought had prenatal care of some degree early on, first or second trimester or something. So at least that's taken care of. But the decision-making of where they delivered is not clear here. And that's something we struggle with too. You know, where should they deliver? Do we you know, it's hard for some of these families to, to get to deliver at some of these hospitals because of distance. So I think that's a really interesting point. But I would love to follow up and see in the 10% of this cohort, you know, what happened to those children versus the others, if we can tease out some difference in morbidity or mortality. Yeah, I think, it, I think it, those are all very exciting prospects in the future. Any other highlights from your project? that you would like to talk about that I have that I that I haven't highlighted? I, I'd like to just make a comment about just how key collaboration is doing this type of study. So for example, Dr. Conchela and I are both perinatal epidemiologists. Dr. Grant is a neurosurgeon. And on the project our collaborators include neonatologists and people with in particular health services expertise. And we have someone on the team who was instrumental in just who understands how to analyze data and all the data management issues and kind of bringing all these data sets together. And then it also depends on collaboration with state programs like CPHS, sorry, the the California Department of Public Health and and CPQCC as well. So just want to appreciate that and express thanks for all the collaboration that it takes to pull this off and the funding. I think that's a, that's a very important point. And not only in doing research, it requires experts in all levels of care. If we, if we look at it from the, the infant standpoint, it requires input in people who provide care 
for the mother and for the, the neonate and the infant and the child, especially with spina bifida, which is going to be a lifelong thing. But then in studying it, you have to have the ability to kind of look at all of those different aspects and understand how interrelated they are and how one small input, something early in pregnancy may have a large downstream effect on what our neurosurgeon ultimately sees following delivery. So the only way to study these is not in the NICU or or in the in the spina bifida clinic, but it does have to start from the, the entry into the whole prenatal care and prenatal diagnosis system all the way through childhood and adulthood. So thank you for bringing right. that up. And I think it's it's all important too. I mean, there is certainly the importance of doing more focused studies that, that may be smaller in size, but to have that more granular detail that would help us understand our findings, like drilling down into what was, you know, what was happening during prenatal care? What was the birth planning? What were the added preferences, personal preferences play into that? And did that have implications ultimately for the baby? As well as with this study in particular, in order to look at these factors in the way that we did, we needed a a very large data system that involved an entire population. So you could really capture the movement of babies from one hospital to another and how far from home and so forth which you can't get from just a single hospital study. But I guess the point is that it's all, it's all really critical pieces of the puzzle and they all have to come together in order for us to really understand what's going on and make a difference. Wonderful. Dr. Cancellara, Dr. Grant, Dr. Carmichael, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing your manuscript with us. I am confident our readers will find this a very interesting and thought-provoking manuscript. Thank you guys very much. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to share. Thanks. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. And join us next time when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.